Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I am an ecologist and a Christian, and I find great joy and harmony in my life in exploring science, studying birds, and in following Jesus. I started Disciple Science to help people connect with God through nature, and I'm delighted that you're here to join me and occasional guests as we explore the intersection of science and Christian faith. Now, let's get on with the podcast. This week, we have a special treat because we have our first return podcast guest. But before I introduce him, I want to give you a little update on what's going on with Disciple Science. If you've been following along closely, you will have noticed that we haven't posted much in the past few months. After a regular schedule, things went a little quiet there for a while. Well, I had a change in my day job after the past 11 slash 15 years in higher education. I decided it was time to be done with my life as a professor and I started a new position in bird conservation and I'm delighted to be doing that work. But that transition which took place in the late summer involved me uh, agreeing to continue to teach one final class for the university where I was while starting that new job and I'm afraid it just left very little time for working on disciple science. So a lot of disciple science work got put on the back burner, but that class is over, things are settling in, and I am excited to re-engage with this project. So I think you'll see um, new material coming out of disciple science on a more regular basis. So thank you for your patience. Now today, as I mentioned, we have the, um, the fortunate opportunity to speak with Dr. Greg Davidson. Now, Greg is a professor of geology at Old Miss University, and he is a very thoughtful contributor to this dialogue on science and faith. He uh, was first on to talk about his excellent book, Friend of Science, Friend of Faith, which I do recommend to any of you that's just starting to explore uh, science and Christianity. But today, we're going to talk about his latest book, which he co-authored with Bible scholar Ken Turner, called The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1. This is not only a well-written book, but an important book that helps us look at Genesis 1 with fresh eyes, considering the, um, the, the legacy of debate that we've had about what the uh, Genesis 1 means and how it influences our view of God's role in the universe and what it means that God created. And uh, their view is going to help us uh, see Genesis 1 in a whole new light. So um, I think you will really get a lot out of this conversation, and I strongly encourage you to go and pick up this book and read it for yourself, The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1, with Dr. Greg Davidson. Well, we are fortunate today to be joined by Greg Davidson, who is one of the authors of a new book that is coming out. It's called The Manifold Beauty of Genesis 1, recently published just within the past few months, which is inviting us to take uh, another fresh look at the opening pages of the Bible. And Greg is someone that some of you will recognize. This is actually his second appearance on the Disciple Science Project, uh, Podcast, and we are fortunate to have him back. And he has also authored other books. It will be of great interest to people interested in the intersection of science and faith on the Grand Canyon and his excellent book, Friend of Science, Friend of Faith. So thanks, Greg, for joining us today. Happy to be here. My pleasure. 
Well, we are grateful to have you. You have um, uh, penned really a very fascinating book because so much of the, the tensions around science and faith do always take us back to the opening pages of scripture. And I, I wonder if at some point you, you and your co-author Ken questioned whether we need another book on the first chapters of Genesis because there must be uh, three or four dozen of them written in just the past few decades. Uh, what, what do you have to say that is that is new as we revisit the first page of the Bible. Yeah, so the uh, saying three or four dozen in the past few decades is probably a very conservative <laughs> estimate. I think so. Uh, yeah, there, there, there's likely many more than that. Yeah. And and you're you're right that we did not have any interest in just adding our voice, uh, repeating the same ideas that are already out there. Mm -hmm. That said, there is there's very little in the book that one could say is completely new. Hmm. What is new is how we have drawn together what other people have already written about into this coherent package. And, and which leads to the premise of the book, which is that with most of scripture, if you talk to a, a Christian, the, they'll speak of the richness of scripture where you can read a passage 10 times and the 11th time you, you see something new, mm. that there are, there are layers of truth to scripture until we get to Genesis 1. And then in large part, because of all of the, the anxiety that's been created over apparent tensions between science and the Bible, that discussion collapses into what is the singular monochromatic understanding of the, the text that must be argued to the exclusion of all others. Mm -hmm. and, we, and we actually lose that sense of the richness of the biblical text. So what we've done is, is basically said, no, we need to push back against that to, to look for and embrace the richness, not in the sense of it, it means whatever you want it to mean. And you know, every, ten, 10 different people can all have a different 10 different views and, and they're all just okay. And we're gonna have a kumbaya moment. Yep. It's not that at all because there's, there's plenty of ways to actually get the text wrong, but that there are multiple layers of not competing, but complementary truth. Mm -hmm. So the book lays out seven different layers of truth that could all be simultaneously true. And it's, it's not an all or nothing proposition where, you know, you, you have, if you don't, if you only buy six of the seven, the whole book just gets <laughs> tossed in the trash. Uh, it, it may be that, you know, if as little as three of the layers really resonate with someone uh, and the others are, yeah, not, not so sure about those, mm -hmm. th that's still a win because it's, it's helping us to recognize that, hey, there, there's at least those three layers right. that can all simultaneously be, be true. They're complementing each other. They're giving us a richer, more fuller sense of the character of God and his kingdom. And the hope is that that begins to move the church away from the internal bickering you know, over you know, which nuanced interpretation is the only acceptable one to perhaps having conversations about our favorite layer or layers. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's all, I probably asked the wrong question. I should have asked, why hasn't someone written this book up until this point? Do you think it is that the tension around that first page of the Bible or is there something else that has... Uh, prevented us from taking all these com 
well, not competing views and helping us to see them as complementary views rather than competing. Are, are there, has anybody else tried to take this on in the past and just gotten stuck? Uh, not certainly not in the modern era that we're aware of. I mean, yeah. you, you can go back and look at other portions of scripture to see this where you can go back to like Gregory the Great, who, mm -hmm. who was one of the, the early popes who, and I, I forget offhand the, which century he was in, but he wrote a commentary on the book of Job and he described the study of Job in particular and the study of the Bible in general as being a, a river that was shallow enough for a lamb to wade and deep enough for an elephant to swim. Yeah. And in his commentary on Job, he actually does lay out like three or four different layers of understanding where you've got one layer that, that is easy to comprehend just from a superficial reading. Mm -hmm. But then as you begin to look at it with different questions asked to the text, you start to see new things that come out of it that are not in competition. They're not overturning the original understanding. They're, they're complementing. It's yep. expanding our understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah, so I think in, in why we haven't seen that up to the present is because our culture has been so polarizing, mm -hmm. and it seems like all of the forces that are at work are, work, are, are pushing us to the extremes and pushing us you know, into these separate tribes where for some things that's completely appropriate, um, but, but then we tend to do it with everything. And so. <laughs> right. Yeah, so everything that comes out is an argument for a particular view. And, you know, if you read a typical uh, theology book that's like on a particular topic, that's maybe four views of mm. topic X, yep. that you'll get four views that are all argued by Christian scholars yep. that are all honor, trying to honor the Bible. Uh, and, but each one, will end with why the others are all wrong. Hmm, yeah. And and they may do so good good naturedly yeah. and considering the others to be genuine brothers, but nonetheless arguing why the others have to be wrong. And in some cases that may be completely appropriate. And in other cases, it may be just this, this uh, um, outgrowth of this polarizing tendency where we forget that, wait a minute, if, if God is truly someone that we have trouble getting our arms completely around <laughs> then it wouldn't be surprising that when we read his inspired word that we would see a, a multifacetedness to it mm -hmm. yep it seems to me that one of the biggest hurdles to embracing this because uh because i'll just say if i haven't made that clear yet this is a, a fantastic book i really think it is well done and I, um, important, and so thank you for for um, for writing it. But that certain corners of the Christian world have this this uh, scripture must be um, simple and and easy to wrap our mind around. Wouldn't God want it to be clear? Wouldn't God want it to be obvious? And the the perspicuity of of scripture that stands in the way of people considering alternative interpretations of really of any passage. Um, whether it be the gospel, the gospel is just simple and clear. It's just, you know, accept Jesus to go to heaven. We don't want anything, you know, more complex than that. We don't want to reassess what Paul is saying. How, how do we get around the comfort with the idea that God wants us to understand his gospel with 
scripture being really quite complex and sometimes nuanced and you know we're encountering new interpretations that maybe we've never heard of before and considering that those might be just as valid as those that we grew up with in Sunday school. Right and that's an excellent question and I think it's important to address it at two levels. Uh, One is that perspicuity issue or question which is a doctrine that says that the essential elements of the gospel are accessible to all people at all times. Mm -hmm. So that anyone who is a genuine seeker, who is open to the the, the leading of God's spirit, can read the Bible and the very first time be confronted with their own sin, their need for a savior, the solution that that, that God has provided, and a way to to find redemption. But to go beyond that and say, well, the entirety of the Bible and all theology is easily accessible to even, you know, the brand new believer, the first time they read it, Mm -hmm. uh, if that was the case, we'd have no use for seminaries, we'd have no need for for preachers, we'd we'd barely need uh, to have church, right? We would just tell everybody, just go read the Bible once, and you're good. One unified denomination, right? Of course, wouldn't that be good? Yes, yes. So- (laughs) So if anybody thinks about this for, for a half second, it should be obvious that not all of the Bible is, has the, the, the same degree of ease of understanding. Yeah. Uh, and so when you're looking at something like the creation story, there, there is an understandable message that's easily accessed from the first time you, you read it. But that doesn't mean you're done, that there aren't, there isn't more to be learned as you grow in the faith, as you grow in your understanding of scripture, and as you read the Bible in its entirety, right? That, you know, mm. It's not that like the creation story was written by itself without any context. Yep. You know, biblical scholars, Christian scholars hold to or believe that the entire Pentateuch was written, so the first five books of the Old Testament were at least initially laid out all at about the same time, you know, as Israel's coming out of Egypt. So the creation story ties in with all the stuff that comes afterwards. Uh, And you don't, you don't realize that until you actually read it with that in mind. Mm. Uh, So that was one layer. Um, The second layer uh, is when we're talking about understanding scripture and that it's accessible to everyone at all times, we, we forget sometimes that, yes, the Bible was written for everyone, all cultures, all times, but it wasn't written to all mm-hmm. of us, right? It was written mm-hmm. to a specific yeah. group of people with a particular culture, living in a particular land, surrounded by a particular set of, of uh, neighbors yeah. that had influences. And it's important to understand the literature that they used, the kinds of, of doctrines and stories that those that they were confronted with at the time. Right. And there, there's irony in that because the it wasn't until like the 16th, 17th centuries that in Western civilization, there was this shift to more scientific and humanistic reasoning, more value placed on the scientific method. Mm-hmm. Where as products of that, we have this sort of instinctive or uh, um, a sense of cultural sense that scientific reasoning and thinking is the highest form of truth. Mm -hmm. Therefore, 
mm-hmm. Genesis 1 must be a scientific text. Right. Not realizing that we're actually taking our culture and imputing it onto scripture and that we may actually be secularizing scripture in our attempt to defend it. That when we let the text speak for itself and realize the culture in which it was written and realize, I mean, just simple things like the the enormous amount of poetry that is found in scripture that is not second class scripture, not second class class literature, that they were communicating profound truth through the use of these poetic methods. Right. Yeah, I I agree that. And I think in my own personal story, coming to peace with that has transformed my relationship with with scripture. You know, I, I was raised in, in a church that that did at least maybe in my own world oversimplified it right and, and I and I was convinced that the that scriptures must be simple and I as I came to understand its complexity it, it first caused discomfort but as I overcame that it, it made me even more interested in scripture and I think that's what you've done beautifully with this book is help us to see that there there may be as many as seven um different approaches to the first uh, chapter of Genesis, right? And some of it bleeds over into Genesis 2 and 3 and, and other areas. I, I have to ask, though, do, it's, it's wonderful that there are, that you chose seven approaches, that number um, finds its way into scripture a few times. Was, was that intentional? Were there other uh, approaches that you, you thought could have been included? Um, or do you, do you, so, I mean, and so you're the scientist, Ken, your co-author is a, is a Bible scholar. Do you feel like that this is a, um, that there are other approaches that scholars hold that might also have been included in your manuscript? Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm impressed that you noticed that the number <laughs> seven was, was I know. there. Yes. Uh, yeah, and of course, for, for, for those who, who may not be intimately familiar with that, yes, the, the number seven is used repeatedly through scripture uh, as a number of perfection. Yeah. And, and actually, when if you look at what numerologists have, have discovered, even in the creation story itself, the, the number of times that a phrase is used it is amazing how many times that phrase occurs, seven times or yeah. three times seven or five times seven uh, or, or, the, or the number of words in a phrase mm-hmm. that in a, in a statement that will be multiples of seven. And it's like, wow, that that's yeah. that's really cool. Especially in Genesis one. Yeah. It's yeah. Really, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the very first verse. Yeah. It's there's multiples of seven yeah. in that that first statement, opening statement. So yes, we, we really liked the idea <laughs> of, of seven. We are explicit in the book of saying that we're not suggesting that there are seven and only seven, and that these seven must be the only ones that are, are possible, that there, yeah. there could be additional ones, and that one doesn't, as I mentioned before, it's not an all or nothing proposition. One doesn't have to think that, that you know, we just nailed all seven of them right. uh, to be accepted as a, a, a package. Um, the When we started out, we kind of had probably five that were fairly obvious between Ken Turner and myself. Mm-hmm. And as we looked at other possible layers to, to consider and, and, and wanting it to be, you know, even beyond just wanting the number seven, 
uh, just looking for other viable, plausible layers. Uh, there were two additional ones that kind of resonated with us, mm. and then others that could also be possible, but they weren't. They just were not as either familiar to the church, or um, you know, they they didn't resonate as much with us. Mm. So we ended up settling on the the, the seven, and just the uh, those are. I'll just go ahead and list them off here. Sure. Yeah, I was going to so, do the same. Why don't you go ahead? Yeah. Yeah, so the, our first one we called the song, or like the hymn of creation, which is patterned after what many people are familiar with, the framework hypothesis. Mm -hmm. uh, second one is the analogy to a human work week. There's a polemic, which is pushing back against the religion and beliefs of the, the surrounding neighbors. There's a covenant at, that's established at creation. Mm -hmm. There is a layer that goes into the amazing similarities between the temple or tabernacle and the creation in Eden. Uh, there's a calendar layer, which would be probably the, the least familiar to people. Mm -hmm. uh, it uh, is, was recently promoted by uh, Michael Lefevre, who was making a case that, that you can find a calendar law narrative that weaves its way all through the Pentateuch that is encapsulated in the creation story where you can almost think of it as, as the agricultural cycle of, of Israel contained within the week of, of creation, complete mm, with, oh wow. complete with a, a, a festival wording. Wow. Yep. Uh, and then the last one is, is land with a focus on the similarities or analogies between Eden and the land of Canaan and subsequently Adam, where Adam's story is Israel's story. Yeah. And, and with, with each of these layers, and I mentioned at the beginning that none of these are new to us, right? What, if there's something new that we're bringing to, it's how all these pieces can be brought together into this coherent whole. Mm -hmm. So what we've done is, uh, you know, if it was the the typical four views of, we would have tried to completely represent someone's position and the issues they may have with others. Mm -hmm. Well, that was not our intent with the book, right? We're we're, we're trying to, to show how these are actually complementary. So we have uh, we frequently reference the individuals that have been largely responsible for advocating for these different views where we've identified the elements that are in conflict with others that are not essential. Mm. And we've, we've either you know, removed those or you know, we mentioned them as non-essential elements yep. uh, so that each of the layers could be described as being derived from or inspired by these theologians as opposed to fleshing out completely what their view is. Right, yep. And you again, you've done a really nice job with that. I um, was familiar with uh, four or five of these approaches, and a couple of them were really new to me. And so I, you know, and I've spent 
too much time thinking about Genesis 1. And so I appreciated that, that even for people that have, have spent a lot of time studying this passage, there's, there's a lot that's new and you have an opportunity to integrate that with what's old. I, I, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to um, ask questions about a few of these. I don't want to go through all seven of them in detail. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so before you do that, uh, no. hold the, the book's spine up to the camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so they can see how thick it is, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. not a that's not a really thick book. No, no. That was by design. Right. And the Ken Turner has has elsewhere described this book as something to whet the appetite <laughs> of the inspiring, you right. know, ins aspiring theologian that that you know the hope for you know the theologian author is that you know, people's inquiry and interest doesn't stop with the, the short chapter on those subjects, but they get, you know, they're intrigued enough to start digging deeper into what others have written about these things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they are fantastic introductions and, and give uh, plenty of background about um, what, why it is a legitimate approach. And you also address some of the pushback and I have a question for you. I'm going to put a pin in that because I imagine there's been pushback about some of these things as well. But um, so you talk about uh, Genesis 1 as, as a covenant um, and acknowledge the word covenant is not used here and it's not an explicit covenant like we see in other passages where it's very directly talking about and God formed a covenant with Noah or, or whoever it might be. Can you um, introduce somebody that's not familiar with Genesis 1 as a covenant, how you come to that conclusion or, or how whoever the, the scholars that advocate for that position come to that conclusion? Sure. And, and there, there is something, there's something called covenant theology, mm -hmm. where it's a framework of viewing scripture that really focuses in on all of the, the covenants that God established with his people over time. Mm -hmm. And without really addressing covenant theology per se, that wasn't how we came at this. Yeah. You know, we, we were just looking at what does the text communicate, and and not not in a vacuum, mm -hmm. because you know when we talk about understanding the you know, scripture in the context of the people it was written to, mm -hmm. and and who their their neighbors were, then you know it, it makes sense that as some archaeology studies have. Um, unearth some ancient libraries that are contemporary with the Israelites that we as you start learning you know what what were the things that the people of Israel were being exposed to that you start seeing some really interesting similarities and and before I go into any detail on that mm -hmm. it's important to recognize the tensions that that reside there because you've got one group of people that as soon as you see a similarity between scripture and mm. some ancient Near Eastern text, that they go immediately to, oh, you know, th this is just one more example of Israel borrowing the dominant, you know, culture and, and sure. theology and uh, of, of, the, of the region of the time, you know, from the dominant nations. Yeah. And so those are the detractors of the truth and inspiration of scripture. Well, in response to that, you get the the detractors of the detractors, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that want to argue against that, and, and and they go the opposite way and just say, oh, all those similarities similarities are just coincidental. You're grasping at straws. This is nothing like what the the people at the you know of the time were were, were writing or thinking. Yeah. 
But there's actually a much more reasonable explanation that's not new to us that, that, that uh, good scholars have offered that says that Israel is living in a place, in a time with actual neighbors, mm -hmm. and there's things that they're, they're familiar with that God is tapping and making use of to illustrate who he is and what his relationship is with his people. Yep. So there's, it's, it's not appropriating or borrowing. It's simply making use of the things that they know. Yes. So, so the in the context, makes sense to them. Of course. Yes. Right. So in the, in the context of covenants, there has been a remarkable uh, uh, discovery of similarities between the structure of a biblical covenant and some of the ancient treaties, mm. uh, Hittite and Assyrian. You know, we, we think particularly Hittite, where there's a consistent pattern that when you have like a conquering king or, or empire comes in and you know, conquers a, a lesser nation and they establish a treaty with them, that's called a, a suzerain vassal. Mm -hmm. So we can think of it as, as a, you know, the king or the emperor and the, you know, the, 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 the nations of the empire. And there is a, a, a pattern to that treaty that can include land grant treaties. So it's sort of a subset of mm -hmm. that treaty where the emperor graciously grants land to this subservient, you know, to the vassal. Yep with conditions that include loyalty and faithfulness. Yep. And there's conditions that if they violate that, then they can experience exile. Mm -hmm. Well, you see that pattern is reproduced almost completely with like the uh, uh, Mount Sinai mm -hmm. tree, uh, covenant mm -hmm. uh, with some significant dis differences, like instead of leading with the you know, if you break the covenant, here's all the bad things that are going to happen to you, uh, followed by, but if you're good, you know, I'll, 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 the, the emperor will do good things for you. The Mount Sinai covenant switches that. So it mm -hmm. starts with the blessings. Mm -hmm. And it's only if you, you know, if you, but if you disobey, then you're going to experience those consequences, which include exile and loss of land, loss mm -hmm. of that land grant. Yep. So when you're looking at that kind of a pattern and then you start working back and you consider that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were written as a, a, a coherent whole, mm -hmm. um, then you see that many of those elements repeated with Abraham, with Noah, yep. and they're there in the creation story as well. Mm -hmm. And you know, some people, when they're talking about covenant theology, will speak of like a covenant of works, mm -hmm. that's not that's not actually where we go with that. Yep. We're actually talking, what we're seeing in scripture is a covenant with nature yep. and a covenant with his people. Yep. Uh, and you know, when you see that, and, and then the things that will come out of that, you know, it's not just an intellectual or academic discovery. It mm -hmm. actually has ramifications for how we, uh, live our lives because when you realize that there's wording actually both with Noah and with the the Garden of Eden that God makes a covenant with the animals mm -hmm. with the very with inanimate creation with the seasons yeah. and he then gives Adam and Eve this land grant where they are supposed to be caretakers 
of his creation that when we're now looking at, at you know, making use of the earth, we're not called to worship anything on earth mm -hmm. in creation, but we're supposed to be good stewards of it. This mm -hmm. is this is something that God made a covenant with that we dare not violate, that we dare not treat with contempt. Right. So, yes, it's there for us to make use of. Yes, it's there for us to uh, benefit from the produce of the land and even things like mining. But to then be responsible for that land where we actually follow up with things like restoration mm -hmm. and and not just treated as something to be used and abused. Right. I thought that was especially important. I mean, and with disciple science, so much of, of my work and interest is in that relationship with the land and our commitment to, to care for. And I think it almost extends into the theology around the fall, right? Because I think some people see the, you know, interpret the fall, the, the curse as something that God um, did to creation in response to our failure uh, to to follow his his guidelines, right? And I think that that you interpret that just a little bit differently. Can you talk about that? Sure. And and this is if there's if somebody wanted to find something you know controversial in the book, uh, it, it might be here. Hmm. But let me say before kind of getting into that, that recognizing that it might be a bit of a a, a tripping point for some people. We've tried to make it uh, 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 to describe the layer where kind of in a similar sense that all seven layers are not an all or nothing package, that one could see and value a covenant layer mm -hmm. without necessarily taking mm -hmm. it where we think it, it, it's going. Right. So if, if your viewers or listeners mm -hmm. don't like what comes next, uh, give the book a chance. <laughs> There's lots of other stuff in it that, that, that you like, uh, including a lot of the covenant layer. But mm -hmm. one of the things that we, we saw in it was that when this covenant is made with the animals, with uh, even the seasons, that you can go later in scripture where Jeremiah talks about his covenant with King David that he will have a son on the throne forever. Mm -hmm. And he makes this fascinating statement about, you know, where he's, he's saying, uh, he's addressing the, the degree of confidence that Israel can have that God will make good on his promise, mm -hmm. where he says, if you can violate my covenant with day and with night and the regular ordering of seasons with the creation, mm -hmm. then so you could violate my covenant with David. So he's, he's making a reference back to the very beginning of a covenant that has actually never been broken. Mm -hmm. right? Nature did not violate God's covenant. Yep. Man did. Yep. And when you read the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, the consequences are that humans will die. Mm -hmm. it, the death came to all men, it says in Romans 5 doesn't say death came to all. It says it came to man. Um, but you do have the curse that says that the ground itself appears to be cursed. So again, using scripture to 
understand and interpret scripture. Uh, In trying to figure out what exactly does that mean, uh, Jack Collins out of Covenant Theological Seminary, I think has has done an amazing job of addressing and answering that question. Because he goes into Deuteronomy and he notes that you can find there these long passages of blessings if Israel uh, follows God and specific curses if they don't. Mm. And those curses include things like uh, cursed will be the produce of your flocks and the produce of your crops and your kneading bowls will be be twisted. Um, and so there's there are these curses against things that, that are in nature. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that Israel did disobey. We know that they did experience those curses. And yet I'm not aware of any Christian theologian who thinks that wheat started growing with thorns mm. or that goats were born that had fangs yep. or that you know kneading bowls and cups suddenly physically twisted where they you know they couldn't make one that didn't have holes in it so so you ask the question what what does that mean then yeah well it meant that their experience with nature was now twisted yep. so a lion eating a deer in the woods is not a problem for Israel. A lion eating their flocks is a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Weeds and tares growing in a meadow are not only not a problem, they may actually be beautiful. Mm. But if they're filling their gardens and their fields and sucking up nutrients that their crops need, that's now a problem. And it results in empty bowls and you know flocks that are are not producing enough so it's not that nature itself is now twisted but man's experience with nature so if i go back to the garden adam and eve were cast out of the garden mm-hmm. right if all nature was twisted because of man's sin there was no need to, to cast them out of the garden mm-hmm. and in fact there was no need for a garden in the first place because if all of the earth was this utopian paradise they could have wandered anywhere they wanted on the planet and every every place is this place is as good as that place there's what are you being cast out of there's clearly something beyond the garden that god thinks is good but mankind's exposure to that might not be might not be a positive thing so being cast out of the garden being exiled is somewhat like uh, we've drawn an analogy to actually I'll give you two analogies. One is is <laughs> like the the wife in that time, if a wife was divorced and sent out, mm-hmm. well, she has not been physically changed, but her experience is now vastly different. She no longer has the protection of her husband. She no longer has his his income and his his home. She's now very vulnerable. Yep. Uh, an example that we've we've drawn with. Uh, interacting with nature is, you know, if you go to a zoo and you look at a tiger, tiger exhibit, and no, I've never seen anybody that goes up to that tiger exhibit and is just horrified at at just the ugliness and uh, brutality of what they see, that they're usually <laughs> awed yes. by the majesty and the sleekness of, of this amazing creature. Yep. And there's no fear. You're like, yep. But this thing, this thing eats things like you. Why are you not fearful? Yep. Well, it's because of this high strength glass between <laughs> me and the tiger, right? Right. 
if I remove that glass, I'm not it's physically changed. Experience. The yeah. tiger's not physically changed, yeah. but my experience with that tiger may just have been dramatically altered in a way that I'm not really happy about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I am, you know, this may be uh, the more controversial part of your book, but I'm really glad that you included it because I think it is, it, it gives us a new, um, maybe not a new approach, but it helps us to see that, that view of Genesis of the Covenant. And I, I guess I had, I had come to peace with that viewpoint, but I had never seen it described in, with covenant language. And it, and it helps it fit together for me even better than, than, what, than where it already did. So it's, it's really a, a, a wonderful approach. Uh, you also, um, of course, talk about Genesis uh, as a song, uh, as, as, as poetic, and that literary framework that you mentioned that some people would be um, familiar with. Uh, when people ask you what the literary genre of Genesis 1 is, what, what do you think we should say? Uh, that's that's another very good question. And where the whole thing gets hung up is kind of a twofold um, argument or problem mm -hmm. where the first is making uh, creating false dichotomies mm -hmm. where something must be either this or this right mm -hmm. yep so it, where is, you're going. it yeah. is either poetry or it is historical narrative yeah. and and a, and a therefore just straightforward history yeah. and i mean you can you can decide to do that but scripture is not going to help you out or justify doing that that it's far more nuanced and complicated than that um complicated in a good way yep. and the there are tons of poetic elements in the creation story but where so the second part of that is when we do create this either or dichotomy that if you look at genesis um and ask is it Hebrew poetry. Well, you go to all the other poetry that's in the, the Bible, and you you dig up other uh, Hebrew literature that's somewhat from that time, yeah. and look at that poetry, it doesn't exactly match any of that. And so people are quick to say, there you go, it's not, it's not a poem, so mm -hmm. it must be historical narrative. But they don't stop and then ask, well, if it's historical narrative, does that look like historical narrative in the rest of scripture and in Hebrew writing. And it turns out it doesn't look like that either. <laughs> so it doesn't fit neatly into either pigeonhole. Yeah. Uh, so what, uh, what many people have said, have noted, is that it is something called sui genesis, gen generis. Actually, I messed up that, that, the pronunciation of that word. It's, it's a Latin term that means it's a genre to itself. Yep. And, and there's speculation on, on why that may be. Some have argued that it, it could be reflection, that this is the oldest of all stories that was passed down through oral tradition for, for a long, long time before it was written down. And so perhaps it's retaining some elements of, of that oldest of all stories. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a genre to itself. Yep. So while it doesn't fit exactly the the formulation of what we call a classical Hebrew poem. There are all kinds of, of 
Hebrew scholars who recognize that, that, that it's, it's filled with poetic elements. Yeah. And if you look at what uh, is often contained in Hebrew poetry, you'll see things like word plays, where you'll have two words that, that rhyme or that sound very similar that are played off of each other. Uh, and you have something called parallelism. So parallelism is, is just all over the place in scripture, yeah. usually in a fairly tight order that's, that's not found in Genesis 1 in quite the same way. And yet there is this remarkable parallelism present. So you take those two things, the play on words and the parallelism. The, the first statement after God created the heavens and the earth is that there, it was uh, formless and empty. And the Hebrew words are tohu wa bohu. Mm -hmm. So it's these rhyming words that set the whole thing up with formless and empty. And then if you look at the structure of the days, you have three days of solving the formless problem with the creation of realms. And where mm -hmm. some people will say kingdoms, where you have the realm of light and dark, then the realm of sea and sky, then the realm of earth complete with plants necessary to sustain life. Then you have the, the second set of three days where you have a filling of those same realms. So you have day four, you have filling the realm of light and dark with sun, moon, and stars. Day five, you're filling the realm of sea and sky with fish and birds. Day six, you're filling the terrestrial realm with animals and man, all finished with this day of rest that God doesn't need. And it gets even better than that because you <laughs> might say, okay, that, that's kind of a, maybe that's an accidental superficial kind of alignment, which I, I, I think it'd be hard to, it's hard to make that argument seriously. But if one did, when you start to break that down uh, to the, the individual verses, you see this, this repeated pattern, right? Where you have, you know, God saw, God said, um, it was so, it was good. Yeah. And that's repeated in the days one and two, three and uh, five and six. But then in days three and six, so the last day of the first uh, three days and the last day of the second three days, have end with duplicate repetitions mm. of that structure. Yep. Yep. As if emphasizing that day three is the culmination of solving the formless problem. And day six is the culmination of solving the empty problem. Lord, yeah. Where this is not just a God who creates stuff, he creates the very realms into which things can exist. Mm. So having said all that, that there's there's an important objection. That, that needs to be addressed because that repetition and um, if I if I had planned this, I would have maybe gone in and pulled up a table from from the book. Um, maybe it's table two. Yeah, so if you, you look at those repeating phrases, so it's you can see how day three and day six has the repetition of of the God said let it was so and it was good. That's repeated in day three and six before you get to there was evening and morning. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the objections to this is that when you look in days two and five, that there are missing phrases. And that people immediately would go to that, that just kind of discounts the whole thing. Mm 
Yeah. Uh, until you look deeper and see what's going on here, and this just this just blows me blows my mind. The the statement it was good occurs seven times, and it's important for the writer to to have it appear seven times. Well, there's a variety of ways you could do that, right? You could just say it once in each day and repeat it on day seven and you're done. Mm -hmm. Well, he doesn't do that. Instead, he very intentionally makes sure that the it was good is repeated twice in day three and twice again in day six, where you can see, you know, that that line C repeated twice in day three, twice in day six. Well, the only way that you can do that and maintain seven occurrences is to leave it out of one of the other days. So it's left out of day five. But if you're going to leave out something in day five and have it align with day two, well, you can't leave out it was good. You (laughs) pick another line to leave out. And that's actually consistent with something in Hebrew poetry that if you look down at, uh, there's a footnote here that that refers to it's the footnote eight there, that parallel phrasing with offset or mismatched omissions is also found in Hebrew poetry where it's referred to as elliptical parallelism. Mm. So the intentionality of that is just amazing. Yes, yeah, can't be, can't be overlooked, can't be wished away. So it's not quite poetry, it's not quite narrative it's I, I like that it's it's its own genre and our desire to sort of check boxes within scripture of is it this or that just doesn't quite apply here yeah um, and, and here's the term that uh right here. oh yeah sui sui generous is a latin phrase meaning of its own kind okay right yeah right yeah and so we've got a, a box one where we've just brought out how a, a bunch of different scholars and exegetes yep. have have identified Genesis 1 as being something that is a richer literary genre than just straightforward journalistic prose. Yes. Okay, so here's the follow-up. You, you do a good job of um, talking about how there are many other passages in scripture that also are, are multifaceted and have this you know, um, you know, can, can be appreciated from multiple perspectives. Where does that end in generous in Genesis? Because I don't, I'm not sure that it ends in Genesis one. It seems like aspects of two and three and maybe four also have a, a richness to them beyond historical narrative. Does that go through Genesis 11? Is there a place to cut? And I know that I'm, I'm asking you to say where, where you know. Yeah. give me simple check boxes after saying <laughs> sure. we fail to to you know make things simple but um right so so of course we don't we don't directly address right. the question of genesis 1 through 11 versus the rest of genesis yeah uh, in this book um well at least not directly uh, right. we, we kind of indirectly do by repeatedly noting that the creation story is not written in a vacuum yeah. In, a, in a literary vacuum, right? It, 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 it is part of the Pentateuch. Uh, and especially when you get into layers of the land and the calendar, mm-hmm. it, it really gets more into how does the creation story weave itself into the whole story of the Pentateuch, yes. including Abraham, Noah, 
um, uh, uh, Moses, the people coming out of, of Egypt, Sinai, all of that working together where is it history? Yes, it's history. Yeah. Uh, is it just 21st century Western journalistic history? Well, that's a different, that's a whole different animal. Yeah. Right? That, that's something of yeah. our creation that we have created a, this, this basically this statement that for something to, drew, to be true and historical, it must fit into this creation of our own culture. Yes. Which is, again, that's, that's basically secularizing the Bible in order to defend it. Yep. yep. It's like, wh wh why would we want to do that again? Right. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. So, so it's probably, yeah, it's just not fair to try and draw really strict um, cutoffs between where the, some of the, the poetic prose ends and, and where the next genre starts. It yeah. seems like. Now, so, and, and getting beyond the book, yeah. uh, I, I would say, I would concur with those that, that do note that, you know, whatever genre wants, one wants to, you know, tag something with, yeah. that there is something very different to Genesis 1 through 11 yeah. than picking up with Abraham and moving forward, yeah. where the, there, there is, what, what moves forward from Abraham does have more of that flavor that we're familiar with yeah. of narrating a, a sequence of events. Though even there, when, when, say, when we talk about the calendar later in our book, there's a remarkable alignment of the, the dates of observance of a lot of these events, where the, the, the supposed recorded dates of occurrences in leaving Egypt and wandering through the desert that align with festival dates that are within the agricultural year yeah. that seems to, seems to be intentional. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, um, I know I'm sure you're going to get pushed back if you haven't already from certain people again, and we've talked about that, that are uncomfortable with seeing Genesis as anything other than historical narrative. I, I wonder, though, if you've gotten any um, helpful criticism from, from, you know, from the academy or, or elsewhere uh, that has, um, you know, helps you see things from a different perspective or just as helpful to for someone that's going into the book for the first time reading it might take into consideration. Yeah. So we, it, it's an interesting question because uh, Ken Turner and I just went to the Evangelical Theological Society of America mm. annual meeting yeah. uh, that was in Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah. And Ken gave a presentation on the book. Yeah where he was, he was in particular was focusing on the, 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 the pastoral mm. um, mm -hmm. potential of the book, oh, as yeah. opposed to like, you know, explaining to everybody what all, what all the layers were. <laughs> and he ended it with basically saying that, that we're kind of uncertain about how, say, the young earth community would take this, mm. because there's not a young earth layer, per se. Yeah. Uh, not because in, in in this case, not because we were intentionally slighting it. We were just basically saying that's that's not the the the, the text isn't addressing that question. Right. And there were a couple well-known young Earth uh, advocates that were in the audience. So Marcus Ross was one who's a, who's actually a good friend of, of mine. Um, yep. I've really appreciated 
the interaction I've had with Marcus over the years. Uh, Jason Lyle was in the, the audience. Mm -hmm. And Ken invited, you know, he, he knew some of these people were there. And he's like, you know, if, if, feel free to, to comment if you want. And Marcus just kind of really surprised me when he stood up and said that I, I love this. It's like this, this fits within our, you know, our overall uh, desire to see th this appreciation. Right. And, and then, then Jason Lyle stood up and I, I was sure he was going to set the record straight. <laughs> and he repeated that. He said that, that, no, this is, you know, and, and granted, neither one of them had had a chance to actually read the book yet. Sure. So, you know, it's possible <laughs> they could read it and come back and like, oh, let me retract what I said there. Uh, but at least. At, at that first, on that first interchange, they, it was a very pleasant surprise. That's, that's wonderful to hear. You know, I, yeah. I think um, in, in your conclusion, you, you, you say you hope that this book can be a, a balm on the, you know, the, the open wound that has, that is still festering, you know, from the, from the past century yeah. of, of debate over. So honestly, matter. if, if someone read this book and they just felt like, you know, th this, this solves it for me, right? Mm -hmm. like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't need to go and like figure out what all of the apparent conflicts are with science and, and this and that. I'm, I'm content to just see that they're, you know, to, to, to recognize that they aren't necessarily in conflict. And, and I see the amazing beauty to this story. They don't need to read my other books, <laughs> um, which is, yeah, it's very, did, did I really just say yeah. that? You want me to edit that uh, out? Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it, it, truthfully. Yeah, but if you finish a book like this and mm -hmm. it's like okay, all right, I see that, but there's there's all this stuff that really does seem like science is 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 mm -hmm. directly contradicting scripture. Then all right, now please pick up a, a you know copy of my friend of science, <laughs> friend of faith book, right. and and you know hopefully that will you know, that the combination of those two books <laughs> will do it for you. Right. You, you, you've got a, a library to solve all, every problem. But no, I, it, this really is. Yeah, no, um, no, I didn't actually say that. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> My two books are all anyone will ever need. Yeah. Uh, this is, I think, though, a really healthy approach. You, you don't spend a lot of time attacking other people, saying what they've got wrong. You just say, this is what we think it is, not what it isn't. I think it's a very generously written and thoughtful. And I think uh, those that read it will find um, uh, whole, uh, new opportunities to dig into scripture from the beginning and find uh, meanings that they might have missed. And uh, we'll just invite further reflection like that Psalm 1 tree planted near a river of, of, uh, of living water uh, is, invites us to do as we meditate on scripture daily. So thank you, uh, Greg and Ken, who, who isn't with us for this fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Yeah, and people I, that are interested in this topic to, to pick it up and go through it quickly. Yeah, so I, I have a parting thought or request Please that yeah. uh, most people unfamiliar with the publishing world think that once a publisher's picked up something that they just put all this money into marketing and everybody yeah. knows about it. And that's not true. <laughs> uh, marketing budget, marketing is very expensive and marketing budgets are, are relatively small. Um, and so the way that word gets out about books like this is when people who read it and like it will write a short review. Mm -hmm. And and it doesn't a good review doesn't have to be 20 paragraphs long. Right. You know, it could be 
four or five sentences yep. that say what kind of impact this book has had on somebody. And when people are, are looking through a, a book source or book supplier, you know, when they, if they encounter a book that's got eight reviews, they all may be great reviews, but it's like, eh, yeah. I'm going to go with this one that, that has 300 reviews yeah. that, that looks good. So yeah. adding that review is, is a really an enormous help. Yes. Well, I think you'll have uh, positive things to say when you get a chance to read it. So uh, I, I do encourage listeners to go out and pick up a copy and, and write a review as well. Thank you, Greg, for your, taking the time to come on and for taking the time to, to read it, um, or sorry, to write it. Um, you probably read, I read it, it too. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Before I cut you loose, I wonder if you can uh, share if, if you have any other projects that are in the works or uh, where our audience can find you. Uh, so they can find more at gregdavidson.net, and mm -hmm. Greg is spelled with two G's. Two G's. Uh, yep, so G-R-G-G-Davidson.net. Yeah. Uh, and what you'll find there is the, the, the books that have been published through Kriegel uh, mm -hmm. on the Bible and, and science and the Bible. And you'll also find uh, works of fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a science fiction trilogy that I, I call a, a parable of spiritual warfare okay. that kind of illustrates how spiritual warfare works through a fictional story of, of aliens that, that come and can move around in an extra spatial dimension. Fine. So that's and there's there's a couple more a couple more fiction novels that are will be coming out in 2022. Oh, great. Good. Well, wonderful to hear that. Well, I'll be sure to put a link to your website in the show notes. And again, thanks, Greg, for your time. Best wishes. Thanks. It was a delight. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to the Disciple Science podcast. At Disciple Science, we believe that integrating science and Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. We produce this podcast and our videos to help you connect with God through nature. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit based in St. Paul, Minnesota. And if you want to support us and help us make more videos and podcasts, you can give by visiting our website at disciplescience.com. I want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and for composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon.